The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalms 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in our heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, as uh, Rev said, uh, this is my second time preaching. Uh, and much like uh, Dr. Alex, who preached a couple weeks ago, I'm not on staff here. Uh, I, I actually work a, a job outside of the church. Um, and it kind of got me thinking what he had said. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, he had, he had kind of talked about how he, he himself, a doctor and several other doctors, it, it, it seemed like our, uh, lead pastor, Justin was, was setting up doctors around himself. And he wasn't sure if this was because he was, uh, kind of a prepper, a doomsday prepper, or if he, he was looking for other people who also wouldn't have jobs in new creation. Well, I think I might be able to bring a little clarity to this. Uh, see, I work at a warehouse, which means I'm good at stockpiling supplies and, and things like that. So um, I'm not saying he's a prepper. I'm saying pray for your pastor. All right. <laughs> uh, so if you are new, uh, if this is your first time, we want to welcome you. Uh, very thankful to have you here. Uh, we're actually now in, in week six of a series we've entitled Psalms, Anatomy of the Soul. Uh, what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at different emotions that we all experience in, in normal daily life and seeing how when we listen to those emotions and, and follow them, uh, they, can, and, and they can lead us toward a full and abundant life. So the question must be asked, what does a full and abundant life look like? Well, thankfully, we don't have to look too far into scripture to find out. In the beginning of Genesis, it, it, it tells us that in the beginning, God exists and he's all that exists. And he, then be, God begins to create and bring order out of nothing. He creates all of the cosmos and in it, uh, a, a small blue ball that we, we know as earth. Scripture tells us that earth was formless and void. And then God begins bringing order to this formless and void earth. We see that he creates uh, fruits and vegetables. He creates animals, and he creates them all in such a way that, that they'll create more of themselves. In all of creation, he looks out on and he says, it is good. And after this, God makes the crown jewel of creation, mankind. God says to himself, let us make man in our image and in our, in, in our likeness. So God grabs dust of the ground, forms it into man, and breathes breath of life into it. But this is the first time that God says that something isn't good. It is not good that man should be alone. 
There needs to be more. There needs to be relationship. So God takes this new man that he has formed and takes from his side a rib. And after putting it, and after taking the rib and, and forming woman from the rib of man, there's now all the elements necessary for a full life. And God takes the man and woman, Adam and Eve, and places them in a garden where they are naked and unashamed. We now see uh, what, we get an idea of what, what it meant to, be, to have a full life, right? We see that Adam and Eve in their, in their naked and unashamed state, that vulnerability is part of the fullness of life that God envisioned. See, they're not just naked and ashamed with each other. They're also naked and unashamed with the God who created them. It says, scripture says they walked with God in the cool of the day. They were also vulnerable and honest with him. So we're a couple chapters into the Bible and we see that what man was created for vulnerability and honesty and relationship with one another and the God who created them, the ability to approach and be approached by God and others without fear, no concern of being hurt, no worry about what others think, no reason to hide. The freedom to be you, the freedom to be known. See, but this Eden experience wouldn't last long. In the midst of all the provision that God gives Adam and Eve, he places one thing among them that is not for them, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives them a warning that the tree is not to be eaten from. For in the day they would eat of it, they would die. The Eden experience would end. But they didn't heed the warning. They were tricked by the serpent, who, who scripture points to as Satan, the father of lies. And Satan doing what the father of lies does, lies to Adam and Eve and gets them to believe that this tree is actually good for them. And they indulge. And this is where everything goes haywire. All the order that God brought about becomes disordered. See, immediately their eyes are open. And it now says that they see their nakedness and they begin to hide. They became ashamed of their vulnerability. See, they sewed for themselves loincloths out of fig leaves to hide themselves. They began to cover up. They hid from one another and they hid from God. The Bible says that they hid from one another behind the loincloths, but they actually hid from God behind, behind trees. But this is not all they hid from. They hid from themselves. They hid from what had gone wrong in them. They believe that their actions were a result of outside influences and not that something inside of them had gone astray. See, when God asked Adam if he had eaten from the tree that he was commanded not to eat, doing what a good husband does, says, it's this woman you've given me. She gave me the fruit. I ate. There was clearly no way to hide the fact that he had eaten from the fruit. But he was not to blame. She was. If situations were different, I wouldn't have acted this way. So he moves to her and says, what is this that you have done? And she says, serpent's fault. Not me. It was the serpent. So what does all this have to do with today's topic? Which if you haven't picked up on it today is anger. We'll get to that. But first, I need to uh, say something so that I can stand up here uh, with integrity before you all this morning. See, I, I was asked several times, 
how did they decide who would preach on which subject in the series? And listen, I'm not sure of all the details. And I was, and I was slightly afraid that after, after seeing guys get up and talk about sadness and hurt and actually cry, I'm like, I think they want me to punch someone. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Uh, I actually think the reason why I got selected for this, this topic was because a good and gracious God wanted to do a deep work in my heart. And um, he has. I know... Uh, probably throughout the, the couple months I've been working on this, I've, I've uh, actually snapped on everyone in my house, including, including our cats, which is their cats, right? <clears throat> but uh, probably no one outside of my 11-month-old was safe. So I say that to say this, that I'm not up here with a guy with all the answers, just delivering to you answers. Right? I'm as broken, as sinful as anyone else, in desperate need of the grace of God. See, but for most of my life, I would not have said that I had a problem with anger. I thought I had a pretty good handle on it. I thought that anger was really only a problem for those people who were constantly, constantly blowing up. I think in the previous seven years of our marriage, with my, with my wife, she had seen me blow up maybe twice. Once, I think, directed at her. I didn't think I had an anger problem. And I would imagine there are many more here this morning that would feel the same about themselves. See, but this isn't true of all of us. There's some of you who are well aware you're angry. You couldn't hide it if you tried. You find yourself consistently, at least more consistently than you'd like, blowing up. You're not even sure why you're so angry. But somebody says something or does something to you, and like a volcano, you erupt. And in your anger, you attack the person, sometimes with violence and aggression, but other times in a more sinister way, with words that cut deep. And in doing so, you destroy your relationships. Nobody feels safe around you. You are absolutely controlled by your anger. And in your anger, you are destructive. And there are others yet who would say, yeah, I feel this anger, but I, I find more constructive places to put it, right? You don't harm people in your anger. You channel your anger into healthier ways of expression. You work out, you do martial arts, you run or you walk. You feel the anger bubbling up and find some healthy place to re release your anger. Maybe you scream into a pillow or punch inanimate objects. You are not controlled by your anger, you tell yourself. You have control of it. But there's another group yet. You don't lash out at people when you are angry, and you don't look to get the anger out by hitting or kicking things. You distract yourself. You pretend that you aren't really angry by controlling or at least trying to control the circumstances around you. When you are in situations that stir you up, when you start feeling that anger arise, you remove yourself from what is stirring you, or you find something else to take your mind off the situation. You escape into television, sports, music, reading, or any num number of other activities that will let you escape what's making you angry until the feeling subsides. So which of these is the right way to deal with anger? When we feel anger beginning to bubble up in us towards someone or something, how should we handle it? Well, the answer is none of them. 
I don't think anybody will argue that channeling your anger or avoiding it are, are much better options than, than lashing out in violence. But none of them will, are actually healthy and none of them will actually lead us to the full life that God hopes for us. See, as we look at today's text, I want to talk specifically about what it is that anger exposes in us and how that anger, if listened to, can lead us back to fullness of life. So if you would open up your Bibles or your Bible apps, we'll be in uh, Psalms in the fourth chapter. Starting in verse one. It says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, the exact time of David writing the psalm isn't really known to us. But we can know a couple things. First, David here does not seem to be in any sort of physical danger. For much of David's life, as he lived as the king of Israel, he was, he was under attack physically in many of David's other Psalms, he'll talk about being surrounded by his enemies or being in constant danger. That's not what's going on in this Psalm. So as we, as we discuss today's topic, I'm not talking about how to deal with the anger that arises when we're physically attacked. This isn't about the self-defense, uh, the anger that rises in self-defense um, when someone breaks into our home or attacks our family. But we will be talking about self-defense. See, in this psalm, and we, can, and we can read it in the second verse, David is not being attacked physically, but he does feel attacked. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Apparently, the attack upon David here was an attack upon his character. And, and he feels the claim is without warrant and outright false. This is more realistic for us here in our context. For most of us, and I would say nearly all of us, we don't run into situations where we feel physically threatened on a daily basis. But I would say that all of us have felt this type of threat. A boss doesn't see all the efforts you put into a job. A spouse is critical about the way you handled the situation. Or people who don't really know you sling around claims as though they know every fact about you. How do you react when you feel attacked? Do you snap back? Do you grumble in your heart? Or like a fool, do you have a made-up conversation in your head where for like 15 minutes you're playing both sides of the conversation and you're really letting them have it? Or maybe you shut down. Somebody is critical or points out something you did wrong and your answer is to pull away. You don't really address the issue, you just avoid it. And in some non-combative way, use yourself to hurt the other person. Or maybe you don't attack or shut down. You defend. That's not true. That's not what I said. That's not what happened. I didn't mean it that way. If only you knew my heart. If only you knew my heart. But the question is, do we really know our own hearts? Do you listen to your heart? Because every time you get angry, your heart is trying to speak to you. Anger is one of the loudest emotions we have. 
Anger is like the check engine light of the heart that screams at us. And oftentimes, just like in a car, the check engine light of our heart is trying to tell us there's a malfunction, that something is misfiring. Somebody does something we don't like, our kids disobey us, or something happens and we begin to get angry. But why? Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, describes anger this way. Anger is a caring feeling, telling us that something matters. Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what's necessary to reach that value. See, anger then is a reaction of love. It shows us what we value, what is really important to us. And in our anger, we will take steps to fix what is wrong. It isn't wrong to be angry that your kids disobey. In fact, it's good for them to obey. Scripture says all kinds of things about how good it is for both the kids and the parents, for them to be obedient. But why do we get so angry sometimes we feel out of control? Why do we react so harshly or get overly frustrated at the slightest disobedience, but other times feel as though we're able to remain so, so calm and patient? Because our loves are disordered. Therefore, our reactions are disordered. See, in its original form, even before things went haywire in the garden, anger was present. And it was present because love was present. But anger found no opportunity to show itself in disordered ways because love was not disordered. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, all of that died. Sin entered into man and our loves got disordered. And when our loves got disordered, our responses also got disordered. Instead of loving God and loving others at the expense of ourselves, we began to love ourselves at the expense of others and ultimately at the expense of, of the purpose for which we were created, an abundant and full life. See, we are broken. And just like Adam and Eve, we hide from our brokenness. That's why when we get angry in destructive ways, we don't seek to, and the check engine light of our heart begins to flash, we don't seek to actually deal with the problem. We deal with the symptom. If I work out enough, if I can distract myself enough, I can take my mind off of what makes me angry. The problem will go away. See that person or that situation makes me angry. So if I can just avoid them, I won't be angry anymore. You don't deal with the problem. You deal with the symptom. We would all agree that it's silly for a check engine light of our car to start flashing and to think by putting black electrical tape over it or pulling a fuse that we've actually fixed the problem. But see, this is exactly what we do when we deal with the way we express our anger rather than investigating why we get angry in the first place. And because we hide the reality of our hearts, we can't really be known by ourselves or by others. But see, it goes even deeper than our overreaction to things. Our anger problem isn't only seen in our blowing up and shutting down or in our avoidance. It can also be seen in our lack of anger for things we really should be mad at. See, our world is filled with horrific acts of violence, injustice, poverty, the list goes on. And sure, those things upset you, but do you get, does your anger reach even near the point it does when your favorite sports team loses a big game? Do you get nearly as upset about racism, injustice, or, imp or poverty as you do when someone slights you or skips in front of you in a long line? See, this is where, this is where 
uh, your heart's overflowing anger about things that don't really matter, and it's low levels of anger about things that really should upset us, is trying to get your attention. It's time we start listening to our hearts and our anger. It's time we do a self-inventory of our hearts. See, this is where David goes next in the psalm. After, after the second verse, we see this word, Selah. The understanding of this word isn't totally known, but many scholars believe it, it's a point to stop and reflect. And oftentimes, the writer of the psalm will change directions on who he's speaking to or what he is speaking to. So David puts a Selah in here and goes into some direction on where we go from here. Verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. David says, be angry, but don't sin. So David is saying, feel the anger, but don't compound the problem. Do what we can to not further it, especially when our anger intensifies. It's important we don't lash out in violence and cut people down. But see, that's not the win. And hiding our anger and pretending it isn't there isn't the win either. The win is freedom. God loves his creation by far too much just to deal with the symptoms of disordered love. He wants to do a deeper work than that. He wants to reorder our hearts. So how does this happen? Well, first, before God can reorder our disordered hearts, we must see that there is a problem and that takes intentional self-reflection on what makes us angry. And to do that, we must experience anger and use it to understand who we really are by understanding what we really love. See, what would it look like to stop looking for ways to deal with your anger and start digging for the root? Stop trying to control your anger, just minimize the damage and listen to it. Some good questions to ask would be, what am I defending? What has become too important to me and what things are not important enough? See, David seems to think that this sort of self-reflection should, should be done regularly. He says, ponder in your, own, in your own beds, perhaps nightly before bed. Do you find time often to stop, listen to your heart? Why not? Why are we so content silencing the anger that we experience rather than listening to it? I think, and I believe scripture would contend that's because we are afraid of what we will find. We don't really want to know what's in our hearts because I think we fear the darkness that resides there. We're much more content believing that our problems are external to us and not in us. That's why when we really think about what makes us angry, it's never us. It's always outside of us. It's the difficult person at work. It's my forgetful spouse. It's my disobedient child. If they were fixed, I'd be fine. But would we? See, the problem isn't really with them. The problem is in us. <coughs> this is why sometimes we get so angry at the slightest disobedience of our kids, but can be so patient other times. Because our anger oftentimes has little to do with them at all and has to do with us. It's how their disobedience is getting in the way of what I really love and value. So think of it this way. Like, I hate being late, right? But why? Because I care what people think about me, right? 
my daughter, she's a three-nanger, right? So, so she, she seems to know exactly when I want to be somewhere on time. This, this is typically when she'll be most disobedient. And this is typically when dad will be most angry, right? But, but why, why do I respond so harshly in that time? It's not about her. I'm not concerned on teaching her the, the gain of obedience in that moment. I'm interested in controlling her. Even my, even my discipline in that moment is about me. Because my love is disordered, now my action towards her is disordered. No matter if that's over the top or, or if I remain calm. See, but there's a type of anger that God is okay with. And even more than that, an anger that he says is healthy and good. It just doesn't look like what we would call anger. Scripture says many things. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him water. Now that, that doesn't seem like I'm angry. That seems like we, we like each other. And here lies the problem. See, most of the anger we feel on a day-to-day basis is driven out of selfishness. Let's be honest. We love ourselves more than we love God and others. If we think honestly about what tends to make us angry, it's about how I'm being affected. But scripture says a righteous anger, an anger that is, that is righteous and good, is not, is not an anger that gets angry at our enemies, but angry for them. An anger that is birthed out of our love for them and not just a love for ourselves. <coughs> See, disordered anger doesn't go after the problem. It goes after the person. But ordered anger goes for the person by going after the problem. Righteous anger isn't concerned about how the sins of, uh, of others affect me primarily, but how it is affecting us. A righteous anger is ultimately born out of my growing love for God and others. So I want to read a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. It's a long clo- quote. I think we have it. <coughs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, Jesus said, love your enemies, that you may be children of your father, which is in heaven. Of course, you say all this about loving enemies is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of dog eat dog. Well, maybe in some distant utopia, the idea will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we followed the so-called practical way for a long time now. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities, which, which surrendered into hatred and violence. We are going to follow another way. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce ounce of our strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation. But we will not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationist. That is the only way to build the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is to cooperate with good. But throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us down, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down. 
See, Dr. Martin Luther King sees that the problem isn't really with those who have sinned against him, but the problem is with the sin in those who have sinned against him. Therefore, he isn't angry at them as much as his love for them makes him angry for them. And this is where David goes in the Psalm. So what is David's response when people are attacking his character? How does David respond to those who are lying about him? Look at verse five. It says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. See, David's anger doesn't look for their destruction. His anger leads him to plead for their redemption. See, David's anger looks through those who have come against, uh, who have come against him to the real problem, the real enemy, sin. And David is gracious. But how? How is David prompted to love those who attack him rather than attack back or cut them off? How is David able to respond so kindly to those who sin against him? Well, look up to verse one. See, this whole Psalm is rooted and grounded out of, out of the grace that David has first received. Verse one says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress be gracious to me and hear my prayer. See, David's prayer is as he says to the God of my righteousness. See, David has found righteousness that is apart from himself. David has come to the reality of who he is, a sinner in need of grace. So you get the feeling that this work that David's calling those attacking him to is a work that's already taken place inside of himself. David has seen that he has broken and he, and he has, and God has been gracious to him. David has not sought to cover the reality of his heart or pretend that it isn't as bad as it is. He has become honest with it. He stepped out from behind the trees. He's, he stepped out from def- defending the reasons of why he sins and taking the onus upon himself. I ate the fruit. It's on me. And he's found grace. To have our anger changed from anger that is destructive to anger that is redemptive, we must first see the truth about ourselves. You are a sinner. And the ways you have sinned against God are way worse than any sin that's been done to you. God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How are we doing in that? Anyone feel like they're knocking it out of the park? Because you're not, and I'm not either. I mean, just think about our anger. The major injustices that happen to others are way smaller deals than the minor injustices that happen to us. See, our love is disordered and therefore so is our anger and disordered anger is a sin and sin is a problem. And most of us who are Christians in the room understand that sin makes God very angry. We might even understand that he's angry at sin because it attacks what he loves. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. He loves his name and his glory. And when sin attack, sin attack, when we sin and we attack what he loves, it makes him very angry, righteously angry. So I think many of us understand the cross of Christ to be the result of what God was angry at. But many of us don't think near often enough about what God was angry for. See, 
We think about the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross. And we're able to see that it's the result of that God had against his anger against sin. But how often do we think about how Jesus going to the cross as a display of how God was angry for sinners in the cross? We see God's pure anger at sin. Yes. But we also see his anger for those who sin. God in his holiness is right to be angry with us. As R.C. Sproul says, we've committed cosmic treason. But the life and death of Jesus, God doesn't look to attack us in his anger. He looks to be gracious. He seeks to redeem. He doesn't run away from those who are making him angry. He runs towards them at the ultimate expense to himself. He ran towards you. Not because you are lovable, but because he loved you in spite of you. The cross is the greatest act of telling the truth in love in history. You are that bad, but you are that loved. See, when you get that, you are free to stop hiding. This is the start of living in the fullness of life that God seeks. Being honest and vulnerable before God, not because you are clean, but because you are a sinner in need of the, only the washing that God can do. You don't need to hide from God anymore. You don't need to defend. You don't need to point fingers. You're free to own it. As Jesus says in the second chapter of Mark, those who are well are in no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His love for humanity moved him on behalf of us with an anger that is not destructive, but redemptive that does not seek vengeance, but displays grace that doesn't run from what makes him angry, but runs towards it. And when, and when we become overwhelmed with the grace that God has shown us our pride and our ego and our necessity to defend, to avoid or attack when we are wronged to defend our pride will be killed. See, Pride says I get angry, I get destructively angry because of them and their dysfunction. Where humility says I get destructively angry because of me and mine. Pride says that you are the problem. Humility says that sees that we are the problem. To get angry at somebody when they sin against you means that you have forgotten that you are capable of the very same things. The same sin that is in them is in you. To view them as the problem instead of the sin that has infected us all will destroy all relationships and the fullness of, of life along with it. It's the pride killing grace that also allows us to own the ways we sin against others. It's what frees us to be angry at all the, all the ways we harm those around us. And in our anger against sin, we are free to pursue making it right. See bitterness, rage, shutting down avoidance. These are all actions of anger, but so is apologizing. So is forgiving. It says that I am angry at the sin that's destroyed us. And I'm angry enough to do something about it, to seek restoration. And so David finishes up the Psalm. In verse six, he says, there are many who will say, show us some good. Lift up the light of your face on us. O Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
See, David points to the, to the reality of life. Everyone's looking for the abundant life. Everybody wants joy. And the things that typically make us angry aren't where they're found. We, th- we think abounding grain and, ab- and abounding wine will fill our heart with joy. We think that if we could have all the things our heart desires, we'd eventually be satisfied. That we'd eventually find the full and abundant life we're after. But David says here that a heart doesn't find joy by having the things it desires, but by having its desires reordered. A heart with disordered desires is a heart that will not find rest. It needs more and more. But a heart that, that truly finds joy is a heart that has been filled with grace. That is what the full and abundant life is about. Having peace with our creator. Not because we've cleaned ourselves up, done enough, but we've sought him in honesty. We've taken off the garments where we hide. The garments of, of religion. The garments of, of just pointing to all my, all my good works. We said, I don't love others and you as much as you require. Forgive me. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, does. It's the promise that he, that, he, that he made in the cross of Christ. And that is where fullness begins. We are free to be, to be honest with, with others about our sin. We are free to, to, uh, to seek them in, in their sin. That is where anger is meant to lead us. All right, let's pray. Father, truth be told, uh, we don't like to be faced with the fact that, that our anger is typically proof that we aren't good people, that we need a savior. But that's the reality of our hearts. That's the reality of our situation this morning. So we ask that, that uh, our hearts would be free to be honest with you, free to uh, reach out to you in, and take off the garments that, that we hide from you and from others, that we'd be honest about our sinful situation, and that we'd uh, look to your cross and the grace that you've, you've promised, that we'd rest in that this morning. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.